He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We talked about yesterday what that means. The king eternal, meaning that the Lord has no beginning or end. It's not just about living forever and ever. That's not just it. Or it's, it's about eternal life means you have a life that doesn't begin and a life that doesn't end. And only God has that. <clears throat> um, and this is what Yeshua promised us. He says, and this is eternal life. John, uh, I think it's John and 17 when he's praying. And he says, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> he says, and this is eternal life. Um, in John 17, 2, he says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua, the Messiah, the one you sent. And so you see, this is that's eternal life. That's what eternal life means. It's having the life of God in us. That's eternal life. It's not living forever and ever. Every human being lives forever and ever after they die. Whether they go to heaven or hell, you live forever and ever. But the point is, is that to have the life that has no beginning and has no end, that is the life of God. Because God is the, this, when he says eternal, it means that he is the self-existent one. He is, the, he, is, he is eternal. He is outside of time and space. He is immortal, meaning he cannot be killed. He can't die at any time. Um, he's also, the, and then Paul says he is invisible, meaning that he's a spirit, so you can't see him. And he fills the whole universe. This spirit defies all laws of physics. He fills heaven and earth. He fills the whole universe, the Bible says. Um, he says in Jeremiah, he says, is there any, is, uh, is either Jeremiah or Isaiah, he says, is there any place a man can hide from me that I can't see what he's doing, says the Lord? He says, do I not fill heaven and earth? The Lord fills heaven and earth. His spirit fills everything. That's precisely why you and I can't get away with anything, why he knows everything, why he sees everything, because he fills everything. And that same, that same, we find that same um, behavior, we find that same action um, on for, uh, from Yeshua when he, uh, when he ascended into heaven. Um, we find that he also fills the universe. Um, this is what the scripture talks about, again, why God is one and that uh, he is not, he's not three separate and distinct persons. He's one. He says in Ephesians 4 and 10, we find that Yeshua does the exact same thing. When the Lord says, he says, do I not feel heaven and earth? We find Yeshua also filling heaven and earth. Why? Because it's one spirit. He says in verse 10, he says, the one, he says now, uh, beginning of verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, he says, now what does he went up mean except that he first went down to the lower regions of the earth? The one who came down is the same one who went up far above all the heavens in order to fill all things. You see, so Yeshua is doing the same thing because it's one spirit. It's one God, one, one spirit, three different manifestations of that same spirit. And so this is what God is. He's eternal. He has no big, he has no beginning, no end. He's immortal. He can't be killed. He's invisible. He can't be seen. And that was really what was so one of the most fantastic things about Yeshua coming to world is like, cause the first time mankind, like mankind in general, 
could see God manifested in the flesh. Here's God manifested in the flesh. And he says he is the only God. That's right. Before him, there is no God. After him, there is no God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the one who holds up the universe by his word. And that's what the Bible says. He sustains all things by the word of his power. In other words, this universe, all the stars, all the planets, they hang on nothing. There's nothing holding these planets up. There's nothing holding Earth up. There's nothing holding the stars in place. There's nothing. There's no physical anything holding the stars and structures of the universe in their place. There's no there's no physical track or physical band that's keeping the Earth orbiting around the uh, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, all the planets that orbit around the Earth. There's no physical track that keeps them rolling. It's laws that do that. You see, and this is the thing that blows the mind of so many atheists and blows that the evolutionary, you know, um, Big Bang or self-cause, you know, universe out of existence. It blows it out of the water because these the universe hangs on laws. There's nothing. This this that's information. Information can't evolve from nothing. You know, all the what we're looking at in terms of how the planets were formed, in terms of how they orbit the sun in terms of how they, uh, how the stars get their shape, how nebula, how galaxies, how comets, all these things, how they function, it's all information. It's information. That's all it is. There's, it's not a physical anything. It's information. And information can't evolve from nothing. And that's what we see all throughout the earth. What is it that says that when rain falls down to the ground, a tree comes up or grass comes up, vegetation comes up? That's a law. You see, those are laws that are in place that certain trees, certain seeds produce certain trees and, and, you know, different. I mean, everything about life itself, whether flora, fauna, flora, fauna or animal and human life. All of it is based on information and code. That's what DNA is. That's what RNA is. All of it is code. And who is it that wrote that code? God. It's God who wrote that code. It's his code that created the universe. And so uh, when we when we look at all of creation, we have to look at it and say, God did it. And that's why in Romans in chapter one, he says, man, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, he says, man is without excuse. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal nature is in divine power and eternal nature have clearly been seen. It's clearly seen that God has done this. You see, we've done worse than the pagans. At least the pagans have said, well, something made it. Maybe it's this rock made the universe. But now we live in the we live in a time where we say nothing created the universe. <laughs> we say nothing. No human beings, atheists, people who don't believe in they say nothing. Nothing. Nothing made us. We just we just evolved from stardust or some foolishness like that. So this is why this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. The Earth's axis, I mean, just think of the precision. The fine-tuning of the universe is one of the arguments. The fine-tuning of the universe. That um, if Earth tilts just half a degree to the left, we freeze to death. Half a degree to the right, or you know, we careen off into space. Everything is so fine-tuned. You know, we look at our, um, we even look at our heart, our body, the, the principle of irreducible complexity that talks about how if you take away one part, the other parts, the other parts 
uh, won't function. Like, say, for example, heart, lungs, brain, heart, heart, lungs, and brain. If I take any one of those out of the human body, it doesn't function. So where do I begin? If I wanted to make a person, where do I start? Do I start with the veins? Do I start with the heart? Do I start with the lungs? No, they all have to form together at the same time in order for a human being to survive. You see, so this is what we're talking about in terms of the brilliance, the infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge of God. So he says in verse 18, he says, now, in light of this, in light of verse 17, Paul says in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in keeping with the prophecies once spoken about you, so that by them you fight the good fight. What is the good fight? Am I fighting against my, does that mean fighting against my brothers and sisters? No. Does that mean fight, does that mean, does that mean arguing with people? Does that mean, you know, uh, fist fighting or going up to physical war with people? No, the good fight is the good fight of faith. He says, holding on to faith and a good conscience. That is the fight. Holding on to the faith and a good conscience. That means holding on to the faith of Yeshua, that it's God's goal for us to think, speak, and behave like Yeshua the Messiah, to follow his program and his purpose for our life. Holding on to faith, that means believing that the Lord's way is best for me, and that is the only way, and that Yeshua died on the cross to save me from my sins. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians um, f- uh, 15 and four through five. And then, but the other side of that gospel coin is that he died so that way I would never again do my own will as second Corinthians five and 15. And so I'm holding on to these. I'm holding on to these. I'm holding on to the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah. I'm holding on to the fact that I don't need to do my own will ever in life. I need to do specifically what the Lord wills. And then third, I'm holding on to a good conscience. That means that when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and convicting us, telling us that we're doing something wrong, that I respond because that's what the Holy Spirit does. In John 14, in John 14, 26, the Lord says, in John chapter 14, this is what the Lord says that the Spirit is going to come and do. He says, but the uh, he says, but the helper. Wait a minute, it's John. I think it's John sixteen. When the spirit, where it talks about how the spirit is going to convict the world because of sin, he will convict the world because of sin and because of righteousness. He says, but the spirit. He says in verse. Uh, I will, and I will in that day of uh, okay. He, he, words of mine. These things I will help. Whom the Father will send in my name will teach you everything. Will teach you everything and remind you of everything that I have told you. Oh, wait a minute. He will. Let me find that verse. He will convict the world. The Scripture says, "He will convict the world of sin." That's John 16, 8. There it is. Okay, he says, but now I'll start at verse 5. John chapter 16, verse 5. 
But now I am going to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking me, where are you going? Because I have spoken these things to you. Grief has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, <clears throat> when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are the three things the Holy Spirit convicts us about. He convicts us about sin. He convict, gives us conviction. He convicts us when we're doing the right thing, to keep doing the right thing, and judgment. He says, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He's always going to convict us of those things. He's going to convict us and he's going to compel us to be, to be going forward in the truth. And so that's what the Holy Spirit's job does. He speaks to our conscience. And that's what the Bible also says. He talks to us in our conscience, that sense of right and wrong. He, he convicts us in our conscience, tells us, don't do that. Don't hang out with this person. Don't go there. Don't do this. Don't be with that person. Don't. And, or, or, and if we do it anyway, how guilty we feel about it. We feel convicted. That means guilty because of what we've done. And so this is, and Paul says that these things are what we have to hold on to because in verse 19, he says, by rejecting these, some have suffered shipwreck regarding their faith. They have ruined their faith because they didn't hold on to the faith. They didn't hold on to a good conscience. They didn't, they, they just, they became careless. They stopped caring. They started doing what they wanted to do, started living their own life, making their own choices, going back into the world, living the same sinful life. He says, because they have done this, they have shipwrecked, they have crashed, they have crushed, damaged, destroyed, ruined their faith. He says they've ruined their faith. They've blown, they've blown it. They've blown it. And that, again, goes back to the once saved, always saved argument. If that's possible, if you can make shipwreck of your faith, how in the world is it that you can't lose your salvation? That's, that's, I mean, Paul makes that point clear there. But then in verse 20, he says, among these, he, he, gives, he even gives names. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be disciplined, not to blaspheme. So you see, when you go beyond... What the when you go beyond the faith of Yeshua, when you go beyond holding on to a good conscience, see this is what happens, you stop caring. That's what the prosperity gospel is all about, and all these aberrant doctrines are all about. People who have gone beyond the faith of Yeshua the Messiah and don't have any fear about it. You see, this is what health the health and wealth gospel is all about. You have absolute people have absolutely no fear of God um, to exploit people with lies and take their money from them. They don't care. People will tell lies in God's name at the drop of a hat to get some money. And they don't care what the eternal consequences are for themselves or for their hearers. They don't care. People just preach anything to get members and to get money from those members. And, and, that's, and that's what Paul is saying here. When you don't care, that's, that's in other words what happened. You don't care about what God thinks. You don't care about how... Um, you don't care about the consequences of your decisions. You just stop caring. And so what happens when you stop caring and you stop being disciplined, you make shipwreck of your faith, and then you eventually end up being hand, in, ended up in the hands of Satan to be disciplined, not to blaspheme, not to speak in a, in a way that, that speak, turns people away from the Lord. Um, and so this is, these things are very, very, very important for us. 
We have got to hold on to a good conscience. We've got to fight the good fight. That means that whenever there's a worldly thing, a temptation, a desire that we have to do something unchristlike, to watch something unchristlike, to behave in an unchristlike way, we separate ourselves from that. You see, that's part of our problem. Part of our problem is that we want to belong to the Lord and then we want some of the world too. It does not work like that. Can you imagine that me as a husband, I say to my wife, I say, well, you know, honey, I love you, but I want a little bit of this other woman too. It just doesn't work like that. Or for a wife to say, husband, I love you, but I just want a little bit of this other man too. It just doesn't work in any way. I want to spend a little bit of intimate time with this other man, or I want to spend a little bit of this intimate time with another woman when you're married. It just doesn't work. It's the same thing with God. You can't have God and then have a little bit of the world too. It's adultery. And I'll close with this verse, James chapter 4 and verse 4. Or Jacob chapter 4, because really Jacob, that's a whole other debate, but that's a whole other issue, but... Really, there is no James. It's really Jacob. Um, He says in James 4, 4, he says, You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred with God? He says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have both. If I'm going to be a friend of the world in any way, that's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, unchristlikeness. If I'm going to be a friend of that, then that makes me an enemy of God, period. And that makes me an adulterer. I can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God too. That's why he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity? That's conflict. That's conflict. That's struggle. That's tension. Conflict, enmity, conflict with God. It's hatred towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse five, or do you think that in vain, the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he made to dwell in us. God is very jealous for our spirit, very jealous. When we give our spirit to something else, God is jealous of that. God's saying that thing that you're watching, that's that's taking your time away from me. That thing that you want to be a part of, that's taking your spirit away from me. I want all your attention. He says, I want all of your attention, all of it, all all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I want your attention. So we have to be careful of that. We have to be very careful to not be an enemy of God because we know what happens to God's enemies in the end. God will destroy all his enemies, the Bible says, and that's, that's anybody who's living that life, whether it's me, the preacher, or anybody else. He will destroy his enemies. So we don't want to be his enemy in any way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Help us not to be your enemy in any way. Help us, Heavenly Father, to do your will. Help us to be holy and humble and godly, meek, full of the fear of God, full of sanctification, Father. That We want to sanctify ourselves to you. You yearn jealously over our spirit. Our spirit belongs to you, Father of Heaven, and that's what we want to offer ourselves to. Whatever thing in my life that I'm holding on to, Lord, I release it. Whatever we're holding on to in this household, we release it. We want to release it and let it go. Help us, Father of Heaven, to devote ourselves exclusively to you and to your service and to learning those things which you would have for us to learn and to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. 
We love you and praise you for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your kindness, for your holiness, for your love, for your power, for your for your mercy and grace, for your salvation, Lord of heaven, for being the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. We praise you and thank you, Lord. Every good thing, every good title, every good accolade goes to you. We ascribe all greatness, all goodness, all wonderfulness, all perfectness and and justice to you, Lord, because you deserve it. We love you and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.